0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Thursday. We should, we should have like a little contest to rename this thing. You know, what, what can you rename it? Like uh, Thursday, what, torture group? <laughs> anyway, everybody turn on the camera. Everybody's gotta say hi. This is great because I, I, I get to see some of my European friends which is wonderful. I had a bunch of Korean friends last weekend. Unfortunately, that's great. Thank you, everybody. Unfortunately, the uh, Korea event um, is not available, but I had so much fun with it that I'm, I'm thinking of actually offering it in, you know without the interpretation and the translation um, because it, you know, everything, everything takes double time when it's translated. Um, but this topic we taught on, uh, or I taught on, uh, they asked me to on uh, Mahamudra and death, and many of you know Mahamudra's, like the apex teachings in the Karma Kagyu tradition. <clears throat> really cool stuff. And so the, they're all called the four pointing outs. Um, pointing out um, what is it? All appearances are mind. Mind itself is empty. Emptiness is spontaneous presence. Spontaneous presence is self-liberated. It, it's a really profound set of teachings, um, which I honestly don't think I've ever riffed on this stuff now that I think of it. So anyway, um, I think it was cool enough or rich enough that, that I'm thinking of doing it completely in English, as an English speaking program. So thanks if, for you who had interests. Um, update stuff, I did the best, inter- I wouldn't say it was the best, I had the best time with uh, Krishnadas KD on Monday. He's a hoot. Oh my gosh, I so love his music. Some of you may know him. He's just like Kirtan master. And I'd heard him in concert before, and we, we've crossed paths and retreat centers and things, but I've actually never got to hang out with him for a while. And, and we we had a really good time. And he completely disarmed me. It was interesting because I came in there with all my little usual nerdy, you know, intellectually irritating questions, <laughs> um, and he and he just like it was great. He just said, you know, he goes, he goes, no, I'm not, I'm the wrong guy for that. And then I said, okay, we'll talk about music. And then he said, nah, you know, I'm not even a musician. And in a certain way, it's like, I just had to give up. It was really sweet. It was like, we talked about devotion and all that. And so it was perfect with the theme of surrendering. So I had this whole trajectory set up. And since I didn't know him, um, it's always, I wouldn't say a risk, but it's always like, okay, what's it going to be like? It did not go where I wanted it to go, but it actually went in, I thought, in a really sweet place. And so what was fun is we, he offered... I asked him and he offered two of his kirtan things, a chance with commentary. And then I actually offered one of my Rachmaninoff things. So it was a a love fest. It was a new bromance. (laughs) Yeah, it's actually really fun. So anyway, um, that's coming up soon. We just processed that. That'll be released next week. Claire Johnson is coming up again. She just published a new book, My Dear Buddy. She's a rock star. Um, I really love her. And her new book, I'm rereading it. I endorsed it. Um, and so she asked if she could come on again. And I said, Are you kidding? She's awesome. So uh, as soon as I come back, I'm taking all next week, by the way, off. I'm, I, my first real vacation in a heck of a long time, I'm going skiing. Um, I'm a big, big time skier. I used to f- compete freestyle, I used to be a freestyle mogul competitor. So, one reason I can't play golf is because my back is so screwed up. But anyway, I'm going skiing in Vail up to three feet of snow coming in if I can get out of town. So um, I'm gone next week with my dear friend, Joseph Parent is gonna be helping out. Some of you may know him, you know, he's a PhD psychologist, three-year retreatant, really smart guy, really savvy. And he's a dear friend, hell of a golfer, by the way. Um, Terrific um, golf instructor. So he's gonna be helping me out um, Monday and Thursday. Tuesday book study group will probably repeat or who knows what we'll do. But anyway, I'm taking the whole week off, yay. So um, Claire Johnson is coming up. Um, we got the, the <clears throat> third in the series of science and medicine webinars coming up with Dr. Ed O'Malley. He's great. He's done two already. He's gonna do the third in the series. If you haven't heard him, he's really good. Um, and then the last lemonade stand thing is the Menla Tantra program, t- uh, Tantric Pure Lands end of the month. Super excited about this one. I haven't taught this in literally 14 years. And as I'm going over the material and reading new books about it, that um, it's like, whoa, I forget how awesomely cool this stuff is. Um, sutra Pure Land is what we did before. There's, you don't, there's no prerequisite, so you can just sign up. I think Andy will put the link in. And this stuff is awesome. Um, Tantric Pure Land means the Tantra, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, the pure land of the present moment. That it's really more about pure mind than pure land. Um, and so the juxtaposition of Sutra Tantra exoteric esoteric land mind is pretty fun and uh bob is just as you know bob is bob bob thurman is there's no one like bob thurman right so anyway that's the lemonade stand stuff coming up so i thought what i would do today um i'm really deep into this this book i I told you i'm writing two books and so um the one i'm i'm pretty much done with it now i just have to you know the essence of those of you who are writers you know the essence of writing is rewriting, you know, literally over and over and slash and burn and, and cut and edit, you know, it, it takes a lot of work, um, but I'm done with the book. And now I'm going through the edits, re-edits, cleaning, edit. you know, um, that part of it. And so I'm jazzed about this book. This is the one, the title of which is, um, okay, I'm mindful, now what? <laughs> It's a critique, it's a, it's a praise of the mindfulness revolution, which is unbelievable, so many benefits. But it's also a little reality check because you know mindfulness is great as it is. As I mentioned, mindfulness will not liberate. Mindfulness just pacifies, it's a tranquilizer. And in this age of such a people, pacification is a big deal. So it's colossal contribution, but there's so much more. Um, and so I think eventually it'll top out. So the charter of this book is to, is to introduce to people you know, just an array of some of the practices that are available to them. So I'm kind of psyched on it. So this is one of the things I wrote that I was re-editing today. I thought I would share it with you. So <clears throat> the little subsection here is uh, training or discovery. There are two ways to look at what meditation does. And by this, I mean meditation in its broadest sense encompassing the entire arena of practices. The more relative, uh, intuitive and conventional way is that meditation tames and then trains the mind like any other discipline. The more you do it, the better you get and the more you amass the results. This is an entirely valid way to look at meditation. But the limitation with this view is that it, it is dualistic. The results are out there somewhere in the future and you have to work to acquire them. The second way to look at meditation is more unconventional. This more absolute approach is based on the non-dual wisdom tradition and is therefore, and is therefore unfamiliar to many in the Western world. From this more ancient perspective, the many qualities that meditation seems to develop are actually already present as innate qualities of the natural mind. Oh yeah, that's the subtitle of the book. Okay, I'm mindful now what? Exploring the wonders of, of the mind exploring the wonders of the natural mind or something like that. I'm sure my editors will completely change it, but maybe not, maybe I'm gonna dig my heels in and say, "Eh, you ain't touching this one. Meditation serves to discover them, these qualities. Just remove the adventitious defilements. You know adventitious, what that means? It means not inherent to, like, like, well, actually I say here, like dust. Just remove the adventitious defilements, clean off the dust and the golden qualities of the meditative mind shine forth. According to these traditions, these non-dual traditions, we somewhat forgot that we possess all these natural wonders of the mind. Meditation jogs our memory. It's like a running commentary here. So it's like the Vajra Regent famously said, great great line, the essence of spiritual practice is remembrance. I would say Paren, <clears throat> the essence of spiritual practice is discovery. Uncovering, same thing. From this stance, the results you're after are always already in here, present right here and now. You merely have to unearth them. While meditation shares a great deal with other disciplines, it is unique in this regard. I'm a concert level pianist and competitive tennis player. I can sit at my keyboard or stand on the courts till I'm blue in the face, but I will not get better at either discipline. (laughs) Hasn't happened yet. However, if I'm shown how to sit properly on my meditation cushion, I will get better at meditation. When people ask me what we do at my meditation center, I sometimes say, well, we do nothing, but we do it really well. This mischievous maxim will come into play when we talk more about some of the more advanced meditations coming up. So just two more paragraphs. Knowing about these seemingly opposite approaches to meditation helps us understand where the results come from. The relative way is more the path of effort and training, while the absolute way is more the path of relaxation and detraining. So what, like for instance, when, when the, you know, I, I did um, the whole Shambhala training program, I thought about halfway through, I said, they need to rename this. You know, it's not Shambhala training, it's Shambhala detraining, detoxification. Why is this important, <clears throat> this more absolute view? First, it helps us to relax. Sometimes people just try too hard when they meditate and that effort can backfire. Second, while meditation may initially feel contrived and even artificial, it's actually the most natural thing you could ever do. Ironically, meditation only feels contrived at first because of all the contrivances that have accrued to obscure the wonders of the natural mind. In other words, meditation only feels unnatural in the beginning because of contrast, because of all the artificialities that have accumulated over our lives. In terms of mindfulness meditation, when you start to meditate, you're going against the monumental tide of all your mindless habits, all your previous training and distraction. You've been unwittingly trained into distraction and mindlessness for so long and to such an extent that that is not what feels natural, but it's not. Mindfulness is totally, mindlessness is totally artificial. It's a twisting and tangling of the natural mind. Mindfulness is actually what's natural. And meditation does the untwisting and untangling that reveals that radical truth. We like to buy things, we like to buy natural things at the grocery, products with no artificial ingredients Meditation is the most natural organic product you could ever buy. (laughs) It's a return to nature, the true nature of your own mind. Once you get the hang of it, meditation feels like the most natural thing in the world. This more unconventional approach to meditation is also really good news because it helps explain why results can occur quite quickly. Because you're engaging in a practice that is in harmony with the way things really are, once you get over the initial hump of resistance, you may be surprised at how quickly you progress. Instead of spending your life swimming upstream, you finally relax and let the natural current take you where you really want it to go all along. What do you think? You got to put it in the column because it's all about me. Thumbs up. Oh, it's brilliant. Andrew was really good. <laughs> anyway, I thought I would share that with you because that's what I was editing this morning. Still needs a little bit more editing, but you know, that's my crack at it. So for those of you who may be new, what we do now is once uh, I get over my little spontaneous. Riff, we talk about stuff, whatever you want. So I'm gonna, there are a couple questions came in, let me go to my other um, thing here. And then we can open it up for whatever you guys wanna talk about, Q&A discussion, okay? Okay, so from Bruce. Does anybody have experience with re I guess that anybody would be me. Well, I guess we could ask everybody here. I think, is it Reme or Reme Remy? This, uh, this is one of the many knockoffs. Well, let me read the rest of it and then I'll talk about it. What it is, it's, well, actually, I, I suppose, let me tell you what it is now because it will help you understand um, the rest of uh, Bruce's question. It's a goggle, it's a knockoff, um, actually, on Stephen LeBerge. He came up with this idea, uh, early 80s, I think. Um, I was actually talking to him about it. Um, he came out, his first prototype, I still have it somewhere. I have actually the very first prototype called Nova Dreamer. It's, it's kind of awesome. It's like a museum piece at this point. It's a very clever device where, you know, when you're, when you're in, um, excuse me, when you're dreaming, you're in REM sleep, literally rapid eye movement sleep. And what Stephen came up with was this idea that, when the eyes are moving, that could send a signal. In fact, that's the way <clears throat> lucid dream was actually proven in the labs. The dreamer was actually sending like Morse code to the sleep um, researchers. But the goggle works in the following way. I have not used this one, but I've, I've used the Nova dreamer a lot. Um, when the eyes are moving, it'll activate a sensor. And some of the newer editions, I think there's an auditory cue as well that, that takes the, the shape of a flashing light, white light. And what you do, you read the manual, you sensitize yourself to the white light and other lights for that matter. And then what happens is because there's communication, you know, you're, you're like if you're really cold, you know, you might be dreaming about skiing, that kind of thing, um, there is some communication. And so in my experience, uh, what happens, and this has worked a lot for me, is I'll be driving, you know, in my dream, not lucid dream, and then it's like, well, why is this person in front of me pumping their lights? Why are they, why are they flashing their lights at me in, in my dream? And then, because I associate that with, oh, wait a second, oh my gosh, that's the dream goggle flashing. That's a dream initiated um, lucid dream. Dream sign wakes me up, oh my God, it's a dream. So something in that you know, pulsing light, my eyes will move, that triggers the light to pulse, and you can set it, that's the key. <clears throat> they come with a standard setting and then you have to tweak it, that takes a while. Because if it's too sensitive, the light will be flashing all the time. And if it's not sensitive enough, nothing, nothing is triggered when the eyes move. So you have to tweak it a little bit. But that trans-dimensional um, communication is enough to trigger lucidity. So Bruce continues, I find that it just doesn't cut through my sleep. Yeah, you're not the only one, it doesn't work for everybody. The unit works when I've increased the light intensity, but with one exception, I just don't see it during my dreams. The one time I did see the light, it manifested as someone shining a flashlight at me. Yeah, exactly. So I can't help you here, Bruce, because I have not used this one. Um, There's a bunch. I mean, there's actually, I saw some YouTube instructions where you could make your own. So if somebody's out there who's had experience that maybe can help Bruce, Um, I have not used this particular one. But the Nova Dreamer, which is no longer being made, unfortunately, um, I have used. And I've used it with pretty good success. But again, these things don't always work for everybody. From Heather, hi, I'm Heather from St. Petersburg. Uh, Florida or Russia? I assume it's Florida. Isn't it the oldest city in the United States? Isn't it St. Petersburg or St. Augustine? Or I, I can't remember. I'm Heather from St. Petersburg, and I have been practicing lucid dreaming for about four years on a somewhat regular basis. <clears throat> Most of the time, I experience vivid dream recall, and have had several lucid experiences. But I notice that I go through periods of amnesia, where I can't remember my dreams at all, or I just, or I get just fragments for weeks at a time. This is despite my day and night time lucidity exercises and having little stress in my life. Are there reasons for this ebb and flow of dream recall? Uh, yeah, there are. First of all, what you're going through, Heather, is super normal. And again, it's it's this uh, <clears throat> this amnesia memory thing is really interesting. It's really interesting. So, on, on, on let me just go to a little primordial riff on this, and then we'll be more practical. On a very real level, um, you know, like when Vajra Region says, the essence of spiritual practice is remembrance. This is a colossal statement because it's not just merely coming back to the present moment, which is what um, the word mindfulness actually in the Tibetan language translates as drempa, recollection. The practice of mindfulness is the practice of memory, coming back to the moment, coming back to the moment. So not only does remembrance apply to that return to the present moment, but that's a kind of a micro step on the path to the primordial remembrance of our true nature. That again, we're, we're already awake, we're already the Buddhist. So this idea of, of amnesia and anamnesia is, is a big one That um, really in so many ways from an absolute perspective, the spiritual path jogs our memory and so the fact that you have periods of amnesia, I mean, we all suffer from primordial amnesia. You've, Heather, you've forgotten that you're a Buddha. Really, you've forgotten. You've forgotten you're a Buddha. Whoa. So the teachers are all here to like dope slap us they're, they're here to jog our memory and say, hey, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. You're Heather, you're a Buddha. Don't you see that? So, you know, you have that amnesia as do, as do I, as do many other people. We just forget. You know, I think I'm just this confused sentient being and Andrew can, can, or Andy can confirm that yes, indeed, he is a confused sentient being. So next time I get on the line, Andy, you should say, oh, no, you're, you're not Andrew, you're the Buddha. That's your job is to remind me, okay, bud. So Heather, practically speaking, what you're going through is super common. It's like, uh, interestingly enough, when I was talking to KD Krishna das, about devotion, um, remind me of what one of my teachers, Punla Prabhupada said about this, where he said, same thing applies here. Same applies to these practices. You said devotion is, is, is like an EKG. He says it's never flat. If it was line, you know, EKG, you'd be dead. Devotion is up one day, down the, like the stock market, up one day, down one day, up one day, down one day. And so um, this is just absolutely par for the course. But you will find, like, here's another analogy like the incoming tide you know, unless it's a tsunami, the tide advances, recedes, advances, recedes, advances, recedes, but eventually it it just advances, right? So what you're going through is super common. Uh, Why you're going through it now, hard to say, but also I can tell you is a very, very common where you enter these kind of droughts, deserts, where like nothing's happening, man. Well, something's actually happening, but it's happening below the radar. Um, And this is where it's important to understand dimensions of mind. It's happening at the level of your substrate consciousness, your, your eighth consciousness. You're putting heat into the system. You're just not at a full boil yet. So if you understand this and you understand what's called phase transformation, literally the analogy of heating is good. You know, you put a pot of water on a stove, depending how big the pot is, how cold the water is, and how much heat you turn on, you're putting energy into the system. Um, but there's all these variables. Sooner or later, if, if you just stay with it, you get this phase transformation. It'll, it'll turn, to, it'll start to boil. You will start to gain more constancy and lucidity. But for now, what I would do is, it's like Rapa said so beautifully around all this stuff, hasten slowly, what a great line, right? Hasten slowly. In other words, keep going. That's the kind of um, effort that's needed. But all the while, having a sense of of the power of the dark side, the forces of the dark side, and how mindless, forgetful, non lucid we are. And that eventually, if you just hang with it, you will start to um, find greater and greater frequency. But even then, in even more advanced phases, so to speak, you can still find times where just you seem to enter this drought. So that's why it's always helpful to remember what the Dalai Lama says, right? I have a little. Little scroll upstairs that says, you know, anything of value, never give up, never give up. So just keep going. Really, um, I don't mean to be patronizing here. The reasons for the ebb and flow, there, there's so many. It's hard to say for sure. Mostly that there are so many tributaries of non lucidity that are influencing us. This is a uh, bottom line, Heather. It's super common, and you just hang in there. So, Maria. Oh, is this Maria from from uh, Munich? Hi. This is one of my European friends. I think I may only have one European friend actually. So <clears throat> you have to be really keep hanging there for me, Marianne. Don't, you know, please, please be my friend. Meditation and tears. Uh, this, okay, so for Marianne, meditation and tears. So now I am practicing meditating with eyes open. Thanks to the weekly meditation group. And I need to cry a lot. Tears running down my cheeks. Is this a cleansing reaction? Anything I should change? Close my eyes a bit more. Uh, you know, it, 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 I mean, a couple things. I, I just assume you're tearing up not just because your eyes are open all the time and it's like, you know, physically uncomfortable. There are some practices where meditations where you like, you keep your eyes open at all costs kind of thing. I'm just assuming that's not it. So yes, uh, the need to cry is, is, is uh, I mean, what to say, I, I mean, using the word good, it's a strange label for this type of phenomena, but um, Trungpa Rinpoche once said, the ideal emotion, this is really beautiful, He said the ideal emotion is sad joy, sad joy. Gets me so choked up, I have to blow my nose. Sad joy. And he talked a lot, as you may or may not know, about the genuine heart of sadness. And so, um, is this a cleansing reaction? Maybe. is it an opening reaction? Probably that as we slow down and relax and open, um, there's a lot of reasons to cry <laughs> and they're not, all, they're not all bad. I mean, we cry out of joy um, when something is so beautiful. Like when I listen to some of um, KD stuff, I mean, it's so beautiful, it makes me cry. And when I read devotional songs and he sent me, it was so cool afterwards, he sent me all these really awesome devotional things I hadn't heard before, these poems from Shabkar and the like, it was like, oh my God. And after we got line, he said, you know, I'd read these to you, Andrew, but I, I, I'd end up crying. So I'm not even gonna do it. So he sent it to me and then he made me cry. So crying is, is you know, it's a good thing in the level that it, it, it denotes a sense of receptivity, openness, um, courage to feel. And, and the tears could be from tears of joy and just tears of just tremendous sadness of what's happening in the world. I mean, for me, yikesy-dikesy, you know, when I, slow, when I slow down and really contemplate what's happening, um, it's extremely painful. What's happening to the planet, to all the animals, to the earth, to life forms, to... to minorities to LGBT. I mean, the list is endless. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And so in that respect, the crying is really good because it's literally a quality of compassion to suffer with. That's what compassion literally means, suffer with. And so this is where things, maybe if you're doing the the weekly thing, perhaps this is somewhat what you're talking about, Tong Lin, you know, the practice of sending and taking. Oh my gosh, you know, when I when I touch into Tong Lin, I do it every morning. <clears throat> I mean, tears are just like right there. Um, as I open and just touch in to what's happening in this world, it, there's a lot to cry about. But here's the the so-called good news with all this is that, you know, As you go through this journey of increased expansion and openness, like I've mentioned, it's heartbreaking. But the heart is a really interesting organ in that when you break this puppy, it just gets bigger. I mean, a properly broken heart just gets bigger. And so the heart just continues to break. And this is why the Dalai Lama, I mean, it's the most amazing thing. I I have seen him in public personally, literally have to throw his robe over his head and, and just weep, just absolutely weep he's not afraid of showing that, Um, you know, he, he's just, he has this incredible capacity to feel and to uh, just accept um, in the best sense of accommodate, you know, the pain of the world. So should I change anything? Um, Again, I don't think it's a physiological thing. Then I would say, no, be a warrior, continue to open your heart, continue to cry. Um, My, one of my, my friend Jeremy Hayward, physicist, was asked this question by a student in a, in a really kind of poignant setting. When he said to Jeremy, he said, "You know, Jeremy, our, our, our tears rain." I thought it was what a beautiful thing. Our tears rain. R A I N. And Jeremy said, "I don't know, but what a beautiful thing to say. You know that that you're raining, um, and rain is nourishing, right?" So. I guess the thing, I'm, I'm rambling here a little bit, um, but for me, it's just the quality of, of don't be afraid to feel, um, don't be afraid to be open, don't be afraid to cry. Um, that kind of vulnerability, receptivity, openness is actually a sign of strength. It's not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of strength. Um, and then maybe you know, the only near enemy there is don't appropriate it, don't take it, don't, don't absorb it in that negative sense, feel it, but don't feed it. Feel it, but don't feed it. So um, unless you have a follow-up question, that's what comes to mind. Um, Yeah, nice. Thanks for offering that, Eveline. And then we'll, we'll we'll go live after this one if there are some live ones. Okay, is meditating and then dedicating the merits of practice while lucid dreaming more powerful than practicing during the waking state? Uh then there's a second question. It, yes, it can be. Um, and this is based on, on what the Mahamaya Tantra in Namkai Norbu Rinpoche and others say, that the practice we do in the meditation, in the dream arena is up to nine times more transformative and effective, efficacious than what you do in the waking state. So everything depends on the force of the intention. Um, So if the the intention is really pure, really clean, and you can do this in a lucid dream, the literature does say, in fact, it can be more powerful than the waking state. Number two, the inception question. I guess that's from the movie Inception, right? Is it worthwhile pursuit to try to commit suicide in a lucid dream? in order to experience death before I die. Now there is an original question. You get the original question of the month award. (laughs) I don't know what to say to that one. Um, I wouldn't say suicide because, I mean, again, that's a little, seems like slightly aggressive. Um, So I wouldn't use that word. this would be interesting if I could get you online, you know, trying to pursue seeing through the illusion of self for sure. I mean, that's what the nine stages of dream yoga are about in in a certain sense, very quote unquote qualified. It's a form of religious suicide. Um, But that's such a loaded charge term. I, 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 I really dance sensitively around the use of that word. So I guess what you're saying and again I don't know for sure you know you're talking about like going to the edge of a dream ledge and jumping off the dream ledge yeah that I would recommend walking into a dream fire absolutely that that I would recommend because then you're in fact that there are classic dream yoga practices where you do that because then fundamentally what you can discover is as they say in the Tibetan book of the dead Emptiness cannot harm emptiness. And so if you're looking at the practice in that regard, I think that's warranted. But again, when you say something like suicide, to me, oh, such a loaded term. It can be somewhat self-aggressive. I I wouldn't do that. Um, If you're looking more like seeing through the illusion of self, self self-transcendence, that kind of thing, if there's any sense of self-aggression or even violence towards self, don't do that. Don't do that. Because they, even that intentionality may not be so cool. So again, the, the verb, the wording, the verbiage here makes me a little uneasy. Um, so I would probably say, in, in strict nomenclature terms, I would say, don't do that. Oh, there you are. Hi, Andrew. Yeah, so, yeah. Help me out a little bit here. Yeah,
1: yeah, I didn't. I didn't mean like, you know, slip my wrist or anything. But I was. So I was lucid last night, and then cool. suddenly I was like, oh. I should practice meditation because I've been thinking about how you say, whatever we practice in our lucid dreams is more effective. And then, and then after that, I suddenly was thinking about what Altair said in book club, like about his dying experience. And then, and then I was like, oh, I'm still lucid. Maybe I should just try to kill myself, Um, not commit suicide, but I want that.
0: That's what I kind of thought. And I would say, yes. And in fact, this is cool. Let me share this with you. I I, I just attended a little online book study thing, study thing with a neuroscientist, really, really bright guy from um, Denmark. And he's doing some really interesting stuff. And one of the things he said, I actually was so cool. I took a picture of it on my phone. He said, resting in the present moment is annihilation. I thought that was a really interesting comment. Resting in the present moment is annihilation. And what he meant by that is, is that if you're truly resting in the present moment, you cannot do the CPR that is necessary to maintain the narrative of the self sense. You know, ego is just a storyline and storylines cannot take place if you're resting in the present moment. That's that's not a page turner, that's a page burner. That's a page ender. So I thought in that sense, yeah, meditation, I thought it was really wonderful statement. You know, resting in the present moment is annihilation because it annihilates the narrative that is actually generative of the egoic structure. So in that sense, go for it. But in the other sense, yeah, don't do that. Okay, Mm -hmm. yeah, nice. Good for you for having a lucid dream. So I'll take one or two that came in live and then Tim just pinged one in here, but I'll get back to Tim in a second. We have uh, Bridget, Sonia and Ted
2: all queued up from uh, last week also. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we got to get to them. Yep. Okay.
3: Hi Andrew. Hi. Um, my question is about the term Bardo yoga. Okay. Um, you you somewhere wrote and said um, it's about illusory body practice, dream yoga, and sleep yoga, if I got it right. Um, but my question is, how about poor and Amitabha practice, for instance, would they not be considered also to be part of Bardo yoga? Or is
2: that seen differently?
0: Well, yes and no. So in the, again, it depends on the structure. So in the six yogas of Naropa, the two supplemental yogas are Bardo yoga and Poa yoga. They're actually, they're separate, but in the same, in the way that you say, both Bardo, uh, both Poa, Transference of Consciousness, and Pure Land on one level, could be subsumed under the umbrella of bardo yoga. So it really, you know, people are always, especially scholars, they're framing and reframing. And it's actually quite helpful. For instance, what's I read a uh, a scholar, actually not a scholar, meditation master, in his mapping, he actually had the main main practice was a loose reform. That's the main practice um, after Chandali. Illusory form is the main practice, and then dream yoga is actually subsumed under illusory form. Um, I hadn't heard that until a couple of years ago, and I thought, wow, no, that's really interesting to me. So it depends on who you talk to. They're all obviously deeply connected. They all support each other, and they all and people just have different classification schemas. But you know, Pure Land teachings, Amitabha, it's its own in the in the sutra exoteric approach. It's this own thing. You know, hundred million practitioners. They don't know anything about bardo yoga. But within the Tibetan scheme, Amitabha, Pure Land teachings would probably be slotted underneath both poa and bardo. Because when you do poa, where do you where are you FedExing your consciousness? To Amitabha, to the, to Sukhavati. So there's a lot of variations in the way people classify these things.
3: Okay, thank okay.
1: you.
0: Welcome. Excellent, bring in uh, Sonia.
1: Hi, Andrew, and everyone. And yeah. thank you again for always just being uh, genius and incredible and so grateful. So, uh, a couple of things. One is um, when I was originally taught, and this would have been with the Glupa school in my early teachings, um, when we talked about gathering merit, uh, I was told dedicate it immediately, dedicate it immediately, because it's like having a debit card. And if you put it in the debit card bank, you dedicate it. Then, with your next burst of unwanted anger, you could not diminish it because it's in right. the bank. And that's why it was so critical to dedicate immediately. Because then, even if you have an outburst, you know, instead of wasting, you know, fifteen kalpas of good deeds that you've accumulated because you hadn't dedicated it, it's in the bank. And I wanted to know if that aligned with right. your of the relevance and critical importance and value of dedicating all the time.
0: Um, yeah, let's, that, stop, let's stop there before you go further. Um, okay. Yeah, the literature does say that. And, and and I chuckle because I think it's chuckleable material, right? So here, here's the image I have. Again, this should be like Andy, Andy, you should do this. You're you're a good stand-up comic. You, I'm gonna ping you some lines, you should do like the Robin Williams of Dharma. So what comes to mind here is like, you know, okay, so I'm, I'm gonna still be a total jerk, but I'm gonna do something really nice. I'm gonna hit the save button on my computer right away. And then I'm gonna be an asshole. Then I'm gonna have my outbreak and it's not gonna affect the thing I just did because I dedicated the merit. I mean, really? So I, I get the spirit behind what they say, but, and again, I'm, I'm, what do I know, right? Uh, I just, I've read the same things that you have. <clears throat> And I've, I read it a lot from the traditions that when you do something good, you, you wanna hit the save button before you crash. <laughs> Otherwise you dissipate it. What am I gonna say? Am I gonna say no? I, I can't really challenge that because it isn't the tradition. But on another level, uh, I, I just, I'm like slightly agnostic and I wonder about that. Um, so I, that's all I can say. Some of these things are a little bit like, okay, well, I guess that's what they say, so whatever. you know the important thing here did you attend the Pure Land teachings with Memla?
1: Well I got them just after I was busy in the days but I've listened to them now, seen them now.
0: Yeah so you remember at the end you know the most I think the most compelling description of the refined approach to merit is the one from Alexander Bazin where where he talks really beautifully about um, uh, positive potentiality and how merit really applies to the twelve madonnas and the twelve links and interdependence that's really the way to think about merit because otherwise in his, I think, really cogent criticism, you know, merit then seems to be like these, merit, these badges, these little Girl Scout badges or whatever. And I guess, I guess if that's gonna make you a good person, go for it, right? But that seems a little bit reified to me. That seems a little bit provisional to me. I, while I understand it, I think it's much more nuanced and subtle than that. And that's why I appreciated what Alex had to say about positive potentiality Perfuming intention, perfuming directions, setting the stream of the nadan is in the right direction. That makes a whole lot more sense than these kind of you know this bank and this merit um, reified like pellets of. Pellets of karma or something right it's like somehow that doesn't seem to work for me
1: except that you know if you assume not assume but if your motivation all along the path is to become enlightened and you're trying really hard and you're working on your uh paramitas and getting better and better and better ever cleaning up but then you have some outbreaks because you're not perfect yet so then in a way it's like the punctuated equilibrium theorem where you get that you know, you're still not perfect, but you, you know, but you keep on ever upward, you know, shifting the whole game up. So that's kind of how I've been interpreting it. Thank God I've got some merit in there.
0: Right. Exactly. But here's the other, here's a really colossal near enemy with that. It is, is, and and I won't name names because I don't want to offend some pretty famous teachers on this, but I, I, If I was offline and this wasn't recorded, I would say, I think that's just BS. When they say, you know, that anger is somehow anti-Dharmic, it's not. I mean, that, do not get into that. Robert Augustus Masters in his book, Spiritual Bypassing, has a couple really, I think they're the strongest chapters in the book, where he talks about, you know, many people think they're kind of sitting with their anger when they're actually sitting on it. Yeah. So there is a place, anger and aggression. Aggression literally means to step forward. Aggress means to step forward. There is a place for that energetic. That's Akshobhya, that's Vajra family, that's clarity of mind, that has a place. That energy in itself is pure. So what we know is anger and aggression in the provisional sense, that's stained because of reference. We, we have those experiences. We stain that pure energy um which sometimes is necessary i mean you know if you look at the the 100 the pantheon of the 100 peaceful wrathful deities that are archetypal expressions of the awakened mind do the math there are more wrathful ones than there are peaceful ones yeah and there's a reason for that so I, I get really leery yes on one level anger is really bad but that's conventional reference role, contracted egoic anger You know, sometimes anger is the fourth karma, of the four karmas. I mean, sometimes you need it. Raffle action, I mean, tough love is absolutely in order. And I've seen teachers like, well, I won't name names, but I've seen teachers get really pissed off in public settings and just like come down like a whip on a person or a situation. But the thing is, it's so pure, it's so clean. It was absolutely what needed to be done. And two seconds later, it's gone. There's no smoke, there's no residue, there's no nothing. It's just really direct cutting Manjushri blades action. And so I say this because sometimes it's easy to think of spirituality as this kind of feeble, pure pacification, love and light thing.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Boy, if you think that's the way it is, good luck to your unconscious mind because you're going to have a hornet's nest of repressed, unprocessed, unmetabolized, digested aggression. So the idea, this is where the tantric teachings really come into play. You know, where you learn how to relate to that energy purely. Um, that's a big topic, so I won't go there now, but I wanted to throw that into the mix because there's nothing wrong with anger if it's, if it's used the way it's, the, so to speak, designed to be used. It's just the pejorative self-referential thing that's so dangerous. So anyway, that's what comes to mind.
1: All right, thank you for that, and I need to look into that more. But um, the next question is more technical. Um, amitabha, we think of uh, as ah in your throat, but isn't the seed syllable hri for Amitabha, and why? I mean, I i not I've seen it
0: it's Tibetan, it's Tibetan. It depends on the language. Uh, so I, I cut you off. I'm sorry.
1: That's fine. I mean, you know what I'm where I'm going. And I just was a technical. I'm not sure quite which is the seed syllable for Amitabha.
0: Uh, uh Joe, are you out there? The actual, the bija, the bija syllable. Um, that was hri? Well, I mean, hri is appended to, uh, to a lot of these deities. Um, I don't know what his bija mantra is, his seed syllable is. Um, it'll probably come to me the minute this session finishes, but I'm having a senior moment on that. <laughs> I don't, think it's, I don't think it's free, um, but it could be. I just don't know, it's, it's escaped me.
1: It's, okay, all it's right, dissolved. well, that's
0: good. It's dissolved into Amitaya's mind, so. <laughs> uh, if it comes to mind, I'll spit it back out, but it's not coming to mind right now.
1: Super, many thanks.
0: You yeah, Um, I'll
2: bring in Ted next, and, and Joe just typed in the chat, it's free. Yeah. It is free, there you go, see?
1: And yet he's ah in the throat.
0: Yeah, these guys—you know—they're all over the place, right? So here's here's the thing about these these syllables and their mantras and their chakras and their locations. You know, uh, I used to get slightly annoyed by exactly this sort of thing. Well, how can this and how can this chakra be red here when somebody else says it's blue? How come there's four petals here and another tantra says there's six? And and the teachers will tell you that. a lot of times there's variability, flexibility in, in these upayas based on particular circumstance and the like. Um, you know, I mean, on one instance, Amitabha, another instance, Amitayus. And so there, I used to get a little irritated with that sort of flexibility because I thought it was sloppy. Um, but lately, lately I've just softened around the whole thing and that, you know, there are variables ways to work with these various expressions and and not get too tied up. I think the clarity is helpful on that challenging the search for that clarity. But you know, the near enemy of articulation is reification again. So always be aware that that's lurking somewhere. It's like, why does it have to be this way? Parenthetically in the Bardo's, this is a major problem with the elegance of the Bardo map, the eight stage dissolution process. It's so articulate. You know, a near major near enemy of that is like, whoa, this is the most amazing map, unbelievable. And so when you have the experience and the territory doesn't match the map, what do you do? Instead of having the map inform you and help make you relax, you freak out. Oh my gosh, it's not supposed to happen this way. Why is- Whoa, wait, I hear a voice from Amitabha I've, I've
5: got a commentary
0: on that. Wait, I mean, oh, amitabha <laughs>
5: I, I have a commentary on that. Okay. Um, And it's from from our instructor in the three year retreat. Which one? We we got um, a practice where we were introduced to practice late in the retreat where all the colors for all the different centers were all mixed up.
4: Oh yeah,
5: yeah. And and we said to him, you know, I, I think that there's a problem with this translation. You know, because they have green where there was orange and there's yellow and w- there, the, uh, the white, red and blue isn't the white, red and blue anymore. Right. And um, uh, and he said, uh, oh, we do that sometimes to keep you from getting the idea that it's real. Oh, that's great. That's beautiful. So, <laughs> so yep. you, you don't attach to things being a particular version and they're stuck
0: that way. Yeah, yeah that's spot on. Yeah. Yeah, and first of the other thing, that's great, Joe. <clears throat> and the other thing that's really important, even from a neurological point of view, there is no color in the phenomenal world. There, there's no color in the world. Color is a construct. But anyway, that's a really great point. Thanks, Joe. Okay, Ted. Ted Talks. Hi, Andrew. Hey, uh, two,
4: two clarifying questions. And, and I don't remember the exact wording, but in in love with the world, bigger, mm-hmm. I At one point, says, I became or I was the mountain, I was the river, yeah, right, you know, I was the tree, and so on. Is that one and the same as when you become nothing, you become everything? Exactly, so it's really just a different way of saying the same thing, exactly, exactly. Yeah, okay, so that's the first one, right? The second one is, and and I'm doing a lot less watching the news now that uh, our friend is out of the white house. Uh, But when he was, and I was watching it almost obsessively, I was using it as reverse meditations. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, my, my question slash maybe fear is that also just planting and watering the seeds in the, in the eighth, storehouse consciousness when you're doing that, when you're, when you're input, when that's coming into the consciousness. Yeah.
0: I mean, it, 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 it can be, it can be, Ted. It depends on how you um, stick to it. So here's the thing about the alia. The, the alia only, things only land and get planted in the alia if you give them a place to land. So you can listen to that stuff. Um, that's a good question. Actually, you can listen to that stuff. And in fact, it can be subliminally feeding your entertainment center. And that is then going to be registered in your Alia. And that's going to then keep recycling and, and you will start to see it in exactly that way. You will start to see it recycling in your thoughts and your dreams. It's just, you're spinning that narrative. So in that case, yes, it's being planted, but you can listen to that without planting. In other words, don't give it a place to land. You're just informed. But um, literally, the relationship, the, the experience is the same. The relationship is profoundly different. In the first case, it's, it's contracted, appropriated, referenced, and then stuck to. And the second one is like those neutrinos, you know, like those billions of neutrinos that are flying through your body right now. Um, so you can still be exposed to that kind of thing and not let it stick. In fact, in in a certain sense, that's kind of a good practice is is actually to listen to those things and notice how it affects you. If it's affecting you, it's gonna stick. If it's informing you, it's not gonna stick, see? So let it inform you, but don't let it affect you adversely.
4: when When I'm doing it as a practice, which I was able to do most of the time, I would turn inside you know, what's the felt sense of what's going on. But then there were times when there was not the awareness, there was not the mindfulness yeah. and there was, you know, but then, then usually afterwards in reflection, it was,
0: oh, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, thanks for saying that. I, SNL did the hit most hysterical thing, Saturday Night Live a couple months ago. It was a brilliant little skit about what are we gonna do, do now that Agent Orange is gone, right, <laughs> right, what, where's the entertainment? I don't even watch the comedians anymore, you know, because the, the grist for the mill is gone. And so it was a brilliant riff, satire on, what are we all gonna do now that the grist for the mill is no longer a grist and in the mill? And so, you know, something bad is better than nothing. It's very interesting what the ego does. Something bad is better than nothing. And so the entertainment value of this guy As twisted as it is, he was entertaining um, for the ego, because he was a representation of the archetype of the ego. So, I mean, for one, that's a really cool thing to do, to relate to this very kind of colloquial um, expression from from both these different ways, and and basically using both as, as opportunities to practice. So it has to do with intentionality, it has to do with levels of stickiness, levels of reference, levels of appropriation. And again, if you simply let this inform you without landing, feeding, and spinning on it, what you wanna stay away from is the propancha, the proliferation. That's what you wanna stay away from. Because once that starts, that's gonna recycle. That's, that's the deep ecology, the recycling of these residues that as you know, it's, you know, it's pretty sick, but it's also perversely entertaining. It's a little bit like the ambulance chasing motif. You know, Oh, wow, geez, that's really tragic, but whoa, can't wait to gooseneck and see what that is about, right? Mm-hmm. So just somewhere in there, we have to look at our motivations and see what's really going on. Good. Thank you. Okay, Thanks, amigo. Okay, there's a question from Tim and Kim, and then we can go back to the live ones. Cool. From Tim. Hi, Andrew. We are interested in our spiritual <clears throat> evolution and kind of understand that concept. What about involution? <laughs> what is that? And can you say a bit about the concept? Yes, I can. Um, yeah, I, I get a lot out of this perennial model. So, <clears throat> oh geez, this is a big topic. Isn't this really interesting one? Um, it goes all the way back to Plotinus, uh, the, Neo, the Neoplatonic philosopher, really sensitive mystic um, scholar philosopher who talked about efflux, efflux, reflux. Same thing thousands of years ago um, Ananda Kumaraswamy, or Abindu, <clears throat> Um, somewhat more recently, Ken Wilber writes about it with a lot of power. I find this model <clears throat> of involution, evolution to be extremely interesting and super helpful. You will not find it in, in the overtly in the Buddhist tradition that I've looked. There are intimations of it in the Trikaya principle and other things. You can say, ah, I think that's what they're talking about. But the idea briefly, again, this is a really big topic. <clears throat> Houston Smith and others, also other perennial thinkers, riff about this. But the idea, and it's a very compelling one, <clears throat> is that, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, that what happens is one way to talk about the entire cosmic play <clears throat> is that out of nothingness, out of Dharmakaya, Godhead, whatever you want call it, you know, formless spirit awareness. And um, the Bardo teachings are actually um, somewhat resonant with this is this, this uh, literally involvement, and that's why I like the word involution, is the involvement of spirit into and actually as form. So you could say that the, that the progression of dharmakaya, sambhogakaya, nirmanakaya, <clears throat> that's the extrapolation. You can say that's an expression of involution, spirit becoming involved in and as form. And, and then what happens, if you, if you think of this as an arc, this is just a really quick bullet point race across a really deep topic. If you think of it as a kind of a descending arc, spirit formlessness on the top, <clears throat> eventually descends, involves, reifies, crystallizes, concretizes into form, goes through this vast intermediate bandwidth of what the Buddhists would call Sambhogakaya. And then it, it kind of bottoms out in what we know is matter. Nirmanakaya, physicality. Um, and then what happens is, and this is where we can thank Darwin up to a certain point. By the way, Darwin did not discover evolution. Um, there were writers and scholars before him, he just gave it the biggest voice. Then we have what we call evolution the return, you know, literally Darwinian evolution and then psychospiritual evolution, the return of matter back to spirit. And so therefore you can look at the descending arc as an involutionary one. The ascending arc is an evolutionary one. And there's so many really compelling things about this map. It's really powerful. Um, One is this process is reiterated um, phylogenetically. And by that, what I mean is this happening all the time. So, and this is why I like the word involution. Every time a thought arises, out of the background formless dimension of the mind and we get excessively involved in it. That's why I love the word. We go into a kind of runaway involution. We get literally too involved with form. That's the definition of samsara. So the, um, oh gosh, there's so much to say here. Um, One other thing that comes to mind and then I might let it go just because the topic is so big that one really compelling thing here, and this is also in line with this idea, the essence of spiritual practice is remembrance. It's a little bit like a, a mixing metaphors. It's a little bit like a rubber band, you know, the, um, the descending arc can also be the rubber band stretching out. You know, you're, you're, you're away, you're farther, farther away from form. For the deeper divers in here, parenthetically, this also, may tie into spinoza's double aspect theory of mind and body that's kind of interesting to throw into the mix but then what happens is when it's stretched apart this way the rubber band form and formlessness then there's this tug you feel this ineffable pull to what to return to source you know to come back to formlessness which by the way that's what death and old age is it's an involuntary evolutionary return That's what death is. It's a forced involuntary, rapid evolutionary ascent back to formlessness. So on on one level, the the rubber band is a good one. So you stretch, 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 and then we feel this calling. There's something missing. I'm feeling this pull. And that pull is actually to return to our true nature. That's the evolutionary imperative uh, impetus. And so the last thing I'll say here, because again, this is a really big one, this is this, this relies uh, um, on the Platonic version of the archetypes, not the Jungian. And there are subtle separate distinctions between Jungian and, and Platonic Greek archetypes. Here's a for those of you who do um, what's called deity yoga practices, um, which Lama Yeshe Rinpoche talks about um, generation stage practice, Yidam deity yoga. He actually uses the term evolutionary yoga which I, when I read it, I said, oh my God, this is brilliant. Evolutionary yoga. And what it does, and I'm sure you didn't know anything about involution and evolution, but it totally ties in because here's the way the logic works. And this is why learning about this stuff is really interesting for people who do these tantric practices. The first forms of involution, these are the archetypes in the Greek sense. The first forms of involution are the last forms of evolution. Let me say that again. This is, a, this is a deep topic. The first forms, the archetypal forms, that in Buddhist language are represented by the lights in the luminous bardo of Dharmata. First forms of involution are the last forms of evolution. So therefore, when you do these evolutionary stage practices, you're sitting in your meditation, you're visualizing yourself as amitabha. You're visualizing yourself as Chenrezig, Tara, all these deities in their in your Pure Land. Why are you doing that? Well, there's a ton of reasons. One is it's an evolutionary practice. It is a reminder. The essence of spiritual practice is remembrance. It's there to jog your mind to say, you know what? You are Chenrezig. You are Amitabha. You just forgot. Here's a deity yoga practice to slap you into remembering. And so it's a fake it till you make it practice. And then eventually, of course, the ultimate evolutionary um, archetype is formlessness itself. And that's where the formless meditations come into play. So uh, I I use this in my Bardo teachings because this recycling process happens at least four different levels. Um, The beginning and the end of the universe, um, the beginning and the end of every single life, the beginning and the end of every single day, the beginning and the end of every single thought and so therefore, this kind of universal process has tremendous explanatory power. Um, I'm gonna leave it at that, but it's, it's a fantastically compelling um, contribution from now what's called the perennial tradition, perennial philosophy that I personally have. Uh, I've used that a ton. It's helped me understand a lot of things. So anyway, big topic. I'll let it go, otherwise we're gonna talk about that one for a week. Okay, who am I? Kim, oh yes. Who am I? I don't know. So this is, a, this is a question from Kim C. Who am I? I am no one. Who am I? I can be anyone. Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche has a poem on YouTube. Yes, I saw that. It's really cute. I saw it. it it's lovely. It's like a Doha. Um, yes, in a and line with this, and, and again, this is the kind of the cross-pollination between masters. This originally uh, I heard from before this years ago from Lama Yeshe Rinpoche. Again, I mentioned him earlier when he, this is a cool story where allegedly he was teaching a class um, or something and there was an actor in the audience and he identified himself as an actor and Lama Yeshe got all giddy and excited. And he said, oh, actor, actor, I best actor. I best actor in his broken English. I best actor, I nothing. Therefore I act everything. I thought that was beautiful, right? I'm the best actor because I'm nothing. I'm nobody, empty. Therefore I can be everybody. I can be everything. I thought that was beautiful. But I do know this, This somebody sent it to me. I listened to it, it's really beautiful. Uh, you can pull it up on YouTube, Tenzin Wonggyal um, poem, it's nice. Yeah, I agree. Cool, okay. Any live ones or are we dead for today?
2: Yeah, we have a few queued up. We have Glenn, then Stephanie, Beatrice and
0: Keenan. Okay, then maybe we'll close it. Uh,
6: hi, Andrew. Um, in the green room. Yeah. Um, wonderful time today. Um, I have two questions. Uh, the first one is uh, maybe has some sub components. Uh, I, I was realizing that in uh, fragments and and fuller lucid dreams I've had, there's there's often a characteristic not only of vividness, but also uh, inquisitiveness, uh, exploration, discovery, and the whole sort of scene kind of buzzing. And um, I'm I'm wondering whether that's just kind of a nyam of my lucid dreaming. It's just a state, it's not a characteristic. And then um, I've noticed that there can occasionally be when I'm walking around outside, real world, eyes awake, the whole thing is there, the same kind of characteristics. So I'm just wondering whether that you'd say that's like nyam that just exists, but that's not necessarily a characteristic that I should identify with lucidity.
0: Well, yes and no, it could be because, you know, the nyams are, they're not always pejorative, right? So these meditation experiences like bliss, clarity, non-thought, this sounds like an experience of clarity conjoined with the experience of of bliss. these are, their intimators, they're pointers out of these dimensions. And so they, they actually could be um, characteristics of, of the foundational state. It's difficult for me to say because I can't step behind your eyes, but you know, that type of, um, oh, how to say it, uh, anything that, let's let's put it this way, anything that can help you de-reify your experience, whether it's in the dream state or more particularly here. Yes, that may be a, a, a nyam in the sense that it's temporary for you as an experience, but it, it actually could in fact also be um, a glimpse of the characteristic of, of this eventually non-dual state. If you're still experiencing it as something other than you, then it's definitely still an experience by definition. I am aware of that. That's definitely a nyam. But, you know, those types of experiences, if they're related to you properly, they can mature. They can become more stable, realized. And then you see the world. And it's hard to say, you know, I'm not gonna tell you how you're gonna see it, but um, yeah, I, I guess where I land on this, Glenn, is anything that can help you fractionate, separate, and see the world as illusory and de-reified is good. So it, it could, you know, these these classic yam experiences are actually pointers of, of the natural state, for sure.
6: Thank you. Okay. And yeah. the second part is um, I'm slowly reading around tenth and Yangol's uh, Tibetan yogas those sleep and Dreams. Okay. And which um, I find really quite an interesting kind of jog. And so one of the things I deal with is like my relationship to dreams previous 30 years has been for meaning. And I came across this statement where he said, "Meaning does not exist until someone starts to look for it. Meaning in dream, meaning and dreams is not inherent to the dream. It's being projected into it by the dreamer, examining the dream and then reading it. And one of the things I've noticed recently is that I, uh, you know, the majority of my dreams are are non lucid, and I actually capture them all because I'm recording them." Uh, and then writing them down later. And the meaning, the psychological meaning now seems to be eminent in it. Yeah. But I guess what he's talking about is the, the being in the dream is one thing. And then as I'm writing down and realizing what it is I'm working with, that's a meaning that I'm projecting into this experience.
0: Correct. Correct. And you can do both. You know, uh, the, the one minor, I wouldn't say criticism, because who am I to criticize him? The only thing that I would append or amends to what he's saying, and I definitely agree with what he's saying, is that you can, you can have a, an integral relationship to your dreams, you can do both. And mm-hmm. so I, I, would, I, I wouldn't be so, you know, there's a kind of categorical, perhaps dismissive quality to that statement that I may not necessarily agree with. On an absolute level, 100% the case. We're the ones that bring the meaning to it for sure. But that doesn't mean after the fact that you, could u- you can't use that data in, in a um, interpreted way to help heal wounds. And, and so that's the one thing I don't particularly, it, I, I used to would add that amendment because it, it tends to lend a slightly dismissive tone to the interpretive lens of working with dreams. And I think it has a place. I don't think it's the most important place because um, self liberation, that's what he's talking about. Self-liberation is the highest domain. Let it come, let it arise. Well, the reason it's coming up in the dream is because you didn't do that in waking life. You didn't let it come, you didn't let it arise, uh, uh, dissolve. You grasp at it, repressed it or whatever. And so then that got thrown into your unconscious mind and now it's coming up as a dream. So yes, you can sit there and let it come and let it arise and let it come and let it arise. But you can also, um, I mean, let it dissolve, but you can also apply a different skill set. You can apply the more psychological arena. Like, why is this really coming up? Why is it really arising? So I, I like a more integral approach because that's slightly, what he's saying is slightly suggestive of a criticism of the psychological interpretive way of relating to dreams. I don't, I like to have a bigger approach. While I completely, if I had to put my eggs in one basket, I would say yes to him, but I would say yes and, right? Then, then bring this other lens. Why not use both? Why not use both? Okay? Okay, thanks.
2: You bet. All right, next we'll bring in Stephanie. I said Love you're it. muted, yeah.
3: Yeah, okay. So, um, hey, Andrew. Um, I can't see anything yet. Uh, Okay, I have a preparing to die question. Okay,
0: are you about to die?
3: Um, so uh, in, your, in your book, uh, you had t- said, I think it takes around the length of time to eat a meal. It takes around 20 minutes, you said. You called that the length of time to eat a meal. I guess it depends how long. But anyway, you, gave, you said for the more subtle body processes to continue once the gross body has died, according yeah. to Western medicine, is that correct? Okay, so, and then it, and then you were speaking at one of your classes that I've been in, it, you said something at, at, like at the outer reaches, you have these master practitioners who are in their most subtle manifestation, still hanging out in the heart area, practicing or something present in some way in the heart area, even three days after that body has been considered dead, right? Warmth, that there was warmth there. so." So I am in the thick of dealing with my advanced directive and all these other death documents, whatever. Um, and I have some practical things I need to answer or deal with. And I have a sense of conflict around for one thing, around organ donation. And and it and I want to see how maybe how you resolve this yourself or approached it or how you suggest approaching it, but because my understanding is that if you're Donating an organ, you you probably, unless obviously, like if I'm in some horrible accident, please take my organs, fine. But in terms of the questions you need to answer on for the directive, do you want to die at home or in a hospital? And I'd rather die at home, but you kind of need to be in a hospital if you're actually planning to donate organs. And um, also they want to take organs from a body as soon as possible according to what Western medicine considers dead. And this is where the conflict is, is that um, a part of me, or sees it as a conflict, it may or may not be, but uh, a part of me thinks, well, I kind of want my body to be allowed, not just my body, whatever process of dying is going to happen, I want it to be allowed to happen at its own pace and naturally, and not have it necessarily interrupted by a particularly Western medicine's determination of how, when exactly it's over because it's it's a process as I am coming to see it as opposed to this black and white kind of thing where, oh, she's dead, you know, let's stop it all. And I understand, anyway, I'll stop it there, but you kind of get the idea that's yeah, one. Sure so how long, how long to allow my body to be left alone? And then that conflicts... I, and sure. I don't know. The organ thing is just one one thing that that makes that a question, you know. Sure. Anyway.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I get it. I, um, and if you if you don't, know, I write about this um, in my book, preparing to die. You know, I have a whole section on organ donation. So I'm gonna gently refer you to that. We'll go
3: back to that, a, maybe. I yeah. Would... I
0: have a I have a whole section on that, so you might want to look at that again. Um, okay. You know, it really depends on you. Um, I've asked a number of teachers this question. You know, don't the tradition says don't disturb the body for three days? Right. Yeah. Um, for
3: how long does the tradition say?
0: Three for how days. long? Yeah. And yeah, again, that's it,
3: not going to happen in my life at this point. It realistically.
0: I can only tell you what I'm doing. I'm an organist. Yes. I have it on my driver's license. Um, most teachers, you know, with with the, with rare exception, the hardcore traditionalists that just, you know, they, they read the text like the Bible and no criticism, that's just the way they do it. Don't touch the body for three days. Most of the people I've asked um, say that the highest activity bodhisattva take it all the way in, into, the, into the death, you know, Bardos, be an organ donor. So I am, um, but as you say, again, this is a big topic. You have to have the tissues have to be oxygenated. You have to have all the stuff. It's not as easy as it may sound. But you know, the technicalities um, around it, this is a very personal matter. You just have to do what feels right for you. Right. Um, so you read the literature, you talk, you ask questions and then you just settle with it and say, I don't care what they say, that doesn't feel right for me, don't do it. You know, you want to go, you want to enter the, the end of life, the Bartles at death state, really relaxed, prepared with whatever feels right for you. You read the literature, you get the guidance. Some of it may speak to you, some not, but eventually you have to make that call. So I'm not gonna tell you what to do around that. Um, you know, most of the teachers I've asked were, were pretty clear organ donation is a really good thing to do. It's a wonderful gesture of giving. And right. you know, going through the bars with the bodhicitta state of mind is the best way to go. Um, the inner the inner yogas for like dismantling it, it gets technical. And I think in a footnote in, in that section of my book, I talk about the technicalities. It only applies to a very small bandwidth of practitioner. Right. Um, and so you might want to just look at that again, but okay that's what comes to mind. Okay, okay. I appreciate sure yeah. it. Good for you for doing. You're doing your advanced directive. That's awesome. It's... it's no fun. No fun.
3: Really, it's, no it's, fun. Uh,
0: it's body self activity to do it. It's also a form of poa. It's called poa of um, power of the white seed. It's actually a form of sutra poa to do hmm. your advanced directive. So
1: continue. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Okay.
0: Okay. You. All right, a couple more. <laughs> yeah, thanks for bringing in
2: everybody. Yeah. Okay, Beatrice and Keen. okay.
7: Hi, Andrew. Hi. Um, my question relates to some of the amazing things you've been saying about the sense of touch and proprioception and the body and the unconscious. Um, and I guess my real question is how to use that in meditation, but I'm trying to pull together some of these ideas so you know the baby has proprioception, but uh, but it's not until a parent says, "This is your body," that it starts to become kind of reified, maybe. So
0: localized, yeah, huh?
7: Localized, and um, I'm thinking also of the science that you quoted in Dreams of Light, chapter thirteen: quantum probability clouds that repel each other, creating the illusion of contact. <laughs> Yeah. And then Tuesday, just two days ago, you talked about the body is our unconscious mind, All right? And you and you said the Buddha, Buddhas don't have an unconscious mind, and they don't have proprioception. And I think oh, you I said
0: I never said that. I never said that. No,
7: no. Okay, I got it wrong then.
0: I never said that. I said everything else up until that point. Yeah.
7: Okay. Did you say the Buddhas have no body? Kind of.
0: Oh lordy, this this is <laughs> subtle stuff. This is where. Oh, yeah. Good questions. Um, uh, Buddhas have a number of different bodies. So let's start with that. This is one of the great gifts of the, of the whole trikaya uh, doctrine. Is in, in in the Hindu tradition, this would be the kosha approach, the five koshas. That the Buddhas have a number of bodies. Um, on one level, relatively speaking, they have an outer gross body. On another level, more subtle relative, but still relative, they have a subtle inner body. Um, and then of course, they have the most indestructible body of all, which really isn't the body, kaya, quote unquote, the the dharmakaya. So when we say a Buddha doesn't have a body, the first question is, well, what body are you talking about? You know, if you say dharmakaya, then you can say, yes, the Buddha does not have a body. The Buddha is no body, literally emptiness, nothingness, no thingness but then they manifest the foreign body and the, the subtle body and the gross body. And so that's one way to talk about it. Maybe I'll leave it at that because the other way is, is, is pretty esoteric. It has to do with what's called self-appearance versus other appearance that, that from the outside, we, we could look at a Buddha and we'll see a body like we see each other, but from their side, that ain't what happening. From their side, they don't have a body. Um, so that's a little, yeah, I don't want to go there. that's probably a little bit too much, but please continue. <laughs> Was there something else? You're muted. <clears throat> there you go. Um,
7: yeah. So okay, so a basic mindfulness practice is mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of breathing. But then they say, okay, do that for a while until you relax and then let go of that and then we're into
0: emptiness. So not quite that fast, but yeah, (laughs) I would hope so. Not quite that fast, but I get the drift, yeah. So yeah, so what you do here, here's the deal. You use the body while you have it. So mindfulness of body, first foundation of the four foundations, super important. And in fact, you know, so much of the spiritual path is really embodiment. But that doesn't necessarily mean exclusively physical embodiment. See, that's the key. So this is where you have to be very careful and your questions denote that kind of granularity is that yes, mindfulness of body is very important, but you know, if that's all it is, then what do you do? You actually reify that body. So this is where it's helpful. This is Theravadan approach, Hinayana, super powerful to tame and train the mind, bring it back to the present moment, the body, which is always already forever, only in the present moment, that's super powerful. But the near enemy, there's near enemies everywhere. The near enemy of that is subtly reifying that body. Oh, I'm coming back to my body. That's where the Mahayana comes in and says, well, okay. You know, this transitions into the second part of your question. There are more subtle dimensions of body within below the gross. And so in fact, then you become more mindful of the subtle body. That's what all the inner yoga is about. The whole array of inner yoga practices are about transferring identity from the gross outer to the subtle inner. But then, what happens? Same thing. People tend to reify even that. That's why there's one more step to go. So that's why you can't just go from mindfulness of the body to emptiness. You got to go through this intermediate bandwidth. But eventually, tying into the involution evolution thing, eventually you even d- shed that skin. You even drop the subtle body, and then you rest in this no body body. <laughs> Isn't it fantastic? The no body body. That would be a great song. The no body body. I like that. And so it's and, and so over there, of course, that's emptiness. So, you know, these are really good questions. Um, but in terms of body, you know, we start with what we have with gross outer body. We land in the present moment. Eventually, we're going to disintegrate not only the body, but even the, the illusion of the present moment. The present moment doesn't even exist, that's an illusion, it's a construct. But the present moment is a gateway to the fourth moment, which is beyond time. So everything is this kind of, you know, continued journey of refinement, sophistication, um, going from confusion to wisdom and to increased, uh, more formless dimensions of wisdom. So something like that. Does that help? Yeah, it's a
7: start, but I think this could be a, a long process.
0: <laughs> you know, here's what I would recommend. Here, I, I'm recommending to several people the work of Reggie Ray around this stuff. <clears throat> Reggie's done some really good work around this. He's written four books. I read them all and they're pretty darn good. Um, it's all about the beauty and the elegance of somatic descent, somatic embodied meditation, the power of that. Um, and because he's a tantric practitioner, he also goes through these gradations you know, that, uh, that I've been alluding to here. So just to give some doctrinal footing and something that you can actually refer to, I recommend all four of his books. They're really, they're really quite okay. That'll just give you a deeper appreciation of the body, um, it's great gifts and also it's, its limitations. Um, so it, it's, a, as you suggest, it's a really deep, profound topic. I mean, one third of all tantric practices about the inner yogas. The other two thirds are about the other two bodies. So this is this is another one of these really beautiful, big, rich topics. So. Something Thank like you. that for starters? Okay, thanks.
7: Thank you very much.
0: You're welcome. Okay, uh, gotta start closing it up. Uh, maybe the two more hands one and then the written ones we'll start with um, when I come back. Because I got I have to do hard stops on these every hour and a half or every hour and a
2: half, so. Just uh, just Keenan's hands. Okay.
0: And then we'll get, we'll get to Peter
8: and Charles Lee next time. That's All right, what... Andrew. Just had a couple of quick comments on-
2: um, You got indeed. a haircut.
8: <laughs> not a haircut just letting it grow
5: Oh, okay i like it so oh, I like when,
8: when bob
0: thurman comes on he's always he's no more nosy than i am you know he's always <laughs> anyway sorry to cut you off but
8: oh no no problem uh yeah I, I just had a few comments something that i've been thinking about in the lines of um, involution, involution yeah yeah and so uh, a couple of things just came to mind one just nobody is everybody <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'll buy that. yeah, and uh, I was just going to say um so the way I've been thinking about this idea of the way you said involution and evolution is potential versus actual and uh, more so been reading so from the infinite potential like the infinity to to a limited being which is um an expressed potential an expressed uh, idea or archetype and this, I'm, I've been contemplating this more in the Sufi tradition and, um, a quote comes to mind, which I heard recently from Shams Tabriz, who was the teacher of Rumi. And somebody kind of asked him, what is that I can offer to, to God or the infinite? What do I have that I can offer? And Shams said, you can offer God your need, your need, your need, need, need. you can offer God your need. And, um, so I've been contemplating that that, that need is, is sacred in the sense because uh, it is only through the limited being that that need gets expressed towards the, the divine. And so, of course, I, maybe this is an endless contemplation, but where I'm feeling it, it takes me is uh, empowerment of the individuality to express it in, the, in this realm. Um, as something something sacred and something not to be escaped, but it is in fact, it is in fact the very self and it can only express itself the way it is in this dimension. So it, it is a form of self-expression that is only possible here. Um, and so hence it becomes, becomes empowered and sacred. But the last point I would make is uh, that evolution and involution Uh, inform each other Mm is involution is not really possible fully full expression is never possible uh till it's reconnected back to source to nothingness um and once you could what i'm experiencing this this kind of arc that you're mentioning in the uh, in the journey the second arc um, which seems simultaneously you keep going back and forth is that the more i die the more i want to be alive and, and live life in, in this dimension. Yeah. No, so I think,
0: that, yeah, I think that, well, first of all, thank you. Beautiful. I love the, the, the Sufi reference as well. I mean, the only thing I, I might add, um, just as a kind of a sly caveat with the involution evolution thing, as powerful as it is, it's still subtly cosmologically dual. Um, and this is why I, I tried, briefly paying The iterative quality that is actually happening like right now between every thought. So this this is this is one of the problems with these types of maps in in language in the unfolding. This is a heuristic, a teaching tool, and it's a really powerful one. But one limitation of the involution evolution thing is that it still denotes some set, some implied sense of separation that you know, the rubber band has been stretched. Here I am, here's here's the source. Oh, well, on a relative level, that's you could say that's true. But on, a, on an absolute level, that's absolutely not true. On a, on a, I mean, an absolute level, you are the source. So on, on an absolute level, that there's no stretching. On an absolute level, it's just literally, um, there's no um, journey. There's just a, a matter of recognition. And so uh, this is important to me because it, it kind of um, demands or invites, again, like I like to talk a lot about these days, the immediacy of the awakened thing that you actually don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to return to the source because you never left it. So that's the, that's the problem with this type of map. Oh, I've got to do this whole evolutionary thing. Well, on one level, yes, relatively true. But on another level, no, you just have to recognize you're already in the source. You never left the source. You already are the Buddha. You just forgot. So, you know, complementarity, I, I work with both. The relative is really helpful because we live in the world of the relative. It helps us understand the the mechanisms of expression, life, birth, death, the whole shebang fundamentally. But, you know, tied into that map is with any map is this cosmological dualism thing that you're somehow separate from the source. You're never separate from the source.
8: Right. No, absolutely. And I, I, I feel like that the, the relative itself is transformed uh, surprisingly by that connection with the non-duality. And I think a lot of the conversations we have are around that is we're trying to reconnect with the source and that doesn't escape the relativity, but at the same time, it transforms it. Yeah. I mean, here Trump said this
0: fantastic thing. This is a great place to end. It's one of the most, I, I've studied this thing over and over in his introduction to the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I, it's just stunning brilliance. He said, uh, um, the absolute experience, the complete absolute experience of the relative is the absolute. I, I, it's just stunning statements. The complete absolute experience of the relative is the absolute. I'll just leave it at that. Nothing could be said more powerfully than that, isn't it? I mean, there it is. talk about the union of the absolute and relative. That's it right there. I mean, that's Trungpa Rinpoche's genius state. Amazing, amazing. So thank you everybody. Great, the questions that came in that I didn't get to. You'll be in in queue next time for sure. Um, I got to end these things at the hour and a half mark, but always fun to hang with you. If I don't come back next week, it means I either got um, swept up in an an avalanche or I decided to just run away. (laughs) But otherwise, see you in a little bit. Everybody stay healthy, happy. To whatever extent it means something to us, let's dedicate our merit for the benefit of not all human beings, but all sentient beings. Life forms, animals, this world, And just, you know, before we get pissed off, right? Before we get angry, let's hit the save button. Dedicate the merit to all beings. Nice to spend time with you. See you in a couple of weeks. Ciao.